Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Come in the internet, this is the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast on an emotional week for us all here. Hi Murph, hi Ken. Hello there, Mark. How are you? Just the day after Serbian star Ana Ivanovic and Man United midfielder Bastian Schweinsteiger tied the knot, Owen McDevitt will also become a married man. Two couples always planned it that way, right? Did it, did it. Uh, Bride magazine had these rather harsh words for this Schweinsteiger Ivanovic big day. Their wedding brought a little joy into their lives following all their recent career setbacks. (laughs) Kind of an unnecessary dig there, I would have thought. Hopefully Irish Podcasting (laughs) Weekly magazine will be a little kinder to McDevitt when they report on Owen's big day. Uh, Well, I should hope so. I mean, I, I, I think you can separate one from the other, surely. You know, success in a sporting field, that's fine. Or failure. Uh, that's completely separate to success on a, on a domestic personal front. We can only wish Owen and Rebecca that same little joy this week. Producer Mark Horgan in for Owen today. Now, as a proud dub, McDevitt only has two guests he bans from appearing on the podcast. One is 80s and 90s Meath Point robot Brian Stafford from Kilmaine and Wood. Well, he wouldn't do from now, Morph. <laughs> I'm telling you, they were called uh, the GA's biggest chokers in the, in the Times today. I mean, I, I know it's tough for you to read that, Mark. Uh, I know you're just teaming up there because you want me to speak you speak to me my mean accent. No, but well, I mean, I, I, I love your 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 podcast only voice, but I mean, the regular voice that you speak in most of the time is is much better. I feel it's it's uh, disingenuous of you not to speak in your mean accent. And band number two is this man. Mulligan out in front. Christie out of the game. Mulligan. They've got to work a score from this. Owen Mulligan. Options to his left. Still Mulligan. Mulligan. What a goal! Yeah, Owen Muggsy Mulligan. Because it's a McDevitt free podcast, the ban is lifted and we'll be speaking to him very shortly about the Ulster final. He's not going to like that. That's my favourite goal ever scored at Croke Park, Murph. Uh, well, I'm trying to think yeah, of any well, that, ma- that match it. It's like just the aesthetic of it, the fact that he was untouched. You know, a lot of the points that are scored, your, your favourite points like McDonald's or whatever yeah. the points at Croke Park the stand, uh, that are clearest in the memory are really aesthetically pleasing. Well, I think a lot of times, you know, um, goals in soccer yeah. are a lot better to look at than, than GA goals but that one is, is it's uh, brilliant yeah is it is brilliant. It's, it's the it's the best goal scored in Crow Park I would say in the last 20 well kind easily of in the last 20 years I mean there's the, if if any Mayo listeners are listening they'll tell me about Podrick Brogan's goal in like the 85 semi-final against Dublin which was just I don't think it was as good as Kieran Whelan's goal against Kildare in the 2002 uh, Leinster final you don't do you know no, I don't. Cause, Talk cause us through Kier- that goal again. Well, Kieran Whelan's. I th- I'm pretty sure it was Dublin had literally just scored a goal, mm. and immediately the game restarted, and Kieran Whelan ran up the round the field and smashed it in off the bar. In off the crossbar. Yeah, yeah, that was a very good goal. Yeah, and the other one I'd pick would be Peter Canavan's uh, Zinedine Zidane type roll into the bottom corner. Yeah, yeah, that was a good goal. I, I'm going to throw into the mix Morris Fitzgerald soloing with his right foot, dummy soloing with his right foot, and then immediately. Sticking it in the bottom corner with his left foot against Armagh in 2000. But I mean, uh, to be honest, Muggsy is 
Muggsy's number one. How three. many bad footballers at junior level attempted the Muggsy dummies and failed miserably in the aftermath of that goal? Kicked themselves in the head. <laughs> uh, that, that's usually well. Usually, what happens? I is can it, I can do that. Yeah. Uh, listen, it's 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 actually more in the eyes. Yeah. So it doesn't matter that I'm three stone overweight. Uh, I can sell this dummy. This has nothing to do with my own personal lithness. Uh, but uh, that, that wasn't the case I'm afraid um, OJ Simpson is all over our TV screens at the moment in both the scripted drama The People versus OJ Simpson and now an amazing documentary series called OJ Made in America which is part of the ESPN 30 for 30 series which we talk about a lot in the show and um, we've just started watching it we love it it's been screened this week in the UK and Ireland on BT Sport and we're going to chat to US Murph about OJ in a bit and about the Open which started today and speaking of which Rory McIlroy gave golf at the Olympics a nice little boot when it's already on the ground this week says he probably won't even watch golf at Rio and instead he'll watch the events that actually matter her. Nikki Simmons, a friend of ours in the show here, who's an Ireland's most capped female athlete of all time, tweeted us, why not say this from the start? Instead claim he wants to represent Ireland, then decide not to. And people within golf aren't too chuffed either. Here's former US golfer Brandel Chambly on the Golf Channel. I think he'll regret those words uh, for the rest of his life. I think it's likely that at the end of his career he'll regret that moment uh, more than any other moment uh, in the history of his career. Uh, in effect, saying that golf doesn't matter in the Olymp- uh, Olympics uh, is an insult to everybody that goes and plays in the Olympics. Uh, it's an insult to everybody that's worked tirelessly since 2009 to try to make golf better by its inclusion in the Olympics. Golf suffers from being too expensive, too exclusionary, too slow, too hard to understand the rules, and from the criticism that for many, many years and continues on that golf is not really a sport. Rory had a chance to go there along with uh, his other uh, his peers stand shoulder to shoulder with the greatest athletes in the world and say golf is a sport look at me I'm an athlete uh, and not only did he choose not to do that and initially when he chose not to do that he cited the Zika virus but in effect today he said I'm not going I'm not playing I'm not watching because it doesn't matter uh, that is an insult to everybody uh, that has, has spent time to, uh, to further this game with its inclusion in the Olympics He's just saying what other golfers are thinking, right, Ken? Um, yeah, although I, I, I don't agree with um, the idea that Roy McIlroy will regret this more than anything. I doubt that very much. If, if that's the case, then he's had a very serene mm. career. Roy McIlroy wasn't saying golf doesn't matter. He was saying Olympic golf doesn't matter. Yeah, you know he he wasn't. I mean, the the guys obviously saying, oh, you know, we've worked hard to get golf into the Olympics, and you know, it's an insult to go, the golfers who are going there saying this competition. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's it's made up. You know, so you think you think McElroy was right to say it then? I think McElroy was wrong. Right. I think McElroy was wrong to say Zika, which is complete, which is complete nonsense. You know, he he made up a fake excuse. I don't. I mean, at least at least he's now saying what he actually thinks. But I thought the Zika thing was terrible because you know there was a lot of people actually going there, and it seemed to me when Rory McElroy said that he was kind of putting a curse on all those people. Like my sister's going there, you know. She's her boyfriend is in the Olympics. She's going to be going to Rio. You know, you got got to listen to Roy McIlroy saying, "Oh, this is uh, you know basically unfit for human habitation." I certainly wouldn't take the risk. But best of the best well, of luck to those said, of you. He who- said. He said- um, this was last month. Though the risk of infection from the Zika virus is considered low, it's a risk nonetheless and a risk I'm un- unwilling to take. I'm not willing to ta- uh, take that risk, but you know, best of luck to you who are willing to take that risk. Yeah, thank, thanks a lot, Roy. Well, for- I, I would say more that it's, it's a huge insult to the people of Brazil, oh, yeah, uh, which I think is the, is, the, is, the main, is the main thing here, that whatever about people you know, taking a risk, okay, that's fine. But I mean, you're basically saying that your country, as you say, your country is not fit for habitation. Yeah, um, well, for you maybe, but not for me. I, I think it's an insult to people's intelligence as well. Yeah, it's quite obvious. You know, he was he was in Barbados on holidays. Um, I don't know what when that was a couple of months ago. It's, this, it's the same sort of risk level in Rio as there is in Barbados. Yeah, so it's it's completely disingenuous. Yeah, um, and I, I kind of find it strange that he bother then coming out and slamming Olympic golf and obviously expressing his actual views well, yeah. on the subject. Because, because he's obviously, uh, whoever wrote that statement for him, I mean, maybe, maybe he writes his own statements. I don't know enough about Rory McIlroy really to know how closely he controls his own communications with the world. But I guess what, he, I guess what their priority was, was to avoid the kind of comment that we just heard where the guy was criticising him for basically insulting Olympic golf, mm. um, even though that's the real reason. McIlroy didn't want to go because don't get paid, bit of a waste of time, not bothered. If he'd said that, the golf community would have been open arms. So he'd rather kind of, you know, blame Zika, 
you know, Zika, which draws, I mean, it's not as though Zika lacks exposure in the world, like the Zika thing is. But, you know, it's, everyone is kind of, oh, really, it's not going to be, you know, it's, he would, he would rather sort of put it on all those people rather than putting those out of joining the golf community. Then he evidently, uh, he evidently blurted out his well, real I think, thoughts. I think he was, he got loads and loads of criticism and he got annoyed at the fact that he was getting tons and tons of criticism and he said, right, okay, well, here's the truth. This, you know, if you want me to tell, tell the truth, here's the truth. I mean, sure, he was being disingenuous. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But I'm kind of, you know, you're used to this at this stage. You know what I mean? Like, people release statements all the time and they're saying one thing and, you know, like politics in the so, last two months. So, how You know, I've got a, a great deal of respect for so my as- fellow MP. You know, like, that's the way it is. Like, that's the way it is in the world. You know, that you to to do something, to, to get out of doing something you patently don't want to do. Yeah, it doesn't have to be, though, you know? Yeah. It doesn't have to be the way of the world. It's someone's dis- choice to make that, so you criticise them when they make that decision. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, the, and when they are disingenuous, then you have to criticise them. Put it this way, Murph. You're... One of the most patriotic uh, gales this yeah, country course. has to offer. Thank you. Uh, second, second only to Shane Lowry. Yep. So now there's uh, McElroy's statement on this and the fact that this is, you know, obviously a get out of jail free card Zika for all these professional athletes. Yep. Then what does what does that say about Shane Lowry? Then Shane Lowry's at home. He's kind of put in a position where obviously, you know, people quite clearly think that the only reason um, the majority of golfers don't want to go is because of the Zika virus. Yeah. So surely that can't be true of you know our great gale Shane Lowry. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, what this statement from Roy McIlroy has done is put the spotlight back on Shane Lowry. And, you know, what if Shane Lowry comes out and says, well, I'm sorry, the Zika virus is a live worry for me. I'm, mm. I've just got married. That's Then I suppose we have to take him on his word. Mm. You know what I mean? Now, I think that McIlroy got loads and loads of criticism because everyone thought that the Olympics is a, has been a complete pain in his arse mm. for the last six years. Because, first of all, he sees himself as a, you know, uh, uh, citizen of the world. You know, he, he 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 identifies as Northern Irish, which is tough for him to negotiate from an Olympic point mm-hmm. of view. So he's he was like, whatever about Jason Day and Adam Scott and these guys getting criticism for the last three months over the Olympics. Roy McIlroy has been getting criticised and before he even did anything or said anything about the Olympics for the last six years. So, I mean, I, I think that it's 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 always been... It's always been a, a pain in the arse for Rory McIlroy, and it's easy, easier for him to get annoyed mm. at all of the Zika criticism because it, it's not like i got to ride this out for a month or more. Where it's Shane like, Larry's been publicly excited about the Olympics for quite a long time yeah. and has been open and expressing that. Yeah, and I think that maybe if he's trying to make a decision and he sees all of these other golfers pulling out and he hears the, as he said in an Irish Times column a couple of months ago, Zika's been talked about an awful lot on the tour, mm. then... You know, all that filters into his decision and, you know, his, his wife in conjunction with him. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 when I heard McElroy's comment, everyone immediately cried bullshit on it. No one did that with Shane Lowry. So, I mean, I, I don't know if the situation has changed massively in the, in the interim, funnily enough, even with McElroy's statement. Right, we'll have Pibezo and Ken's friends some high rise stuff coming up a little bit later in the show as well. But it's Donegal against Tyrone in the Ulster Championship this weekend. We can't wait for it. We're joined by one of Tyrone's finest, Owen Mulligan, right now. How are you doing, Owen? Not too bad. Keeping well. Good stuff. Jim McGuinness in the Irish Times has been writing about the significance of this match on Sunday. He says, Tyrone feel they are back. Donegal feel they can handle Tyrone. So in terms of history, they share and have made. I believe this game means as much as an All-Ireland final. Um, I think this is always difficult for people outside of Ulster to understand. Would you feel this is an important, uh, this match is as, as important as an All-Ireland? Um, it certainly is. Um, we we feel as a county, we've been, um, as Donegal's kind of our bogey team at the minute. And we just can't get past them. But this young crop of players coming through, they're young, they're fast, they're hungry. Um, I think the game will be very tough. But as I said, it seemed to be our Achilles heel at the minute. And we just can't, we just can't seem to beat them. But I think we have a team that will put it up to them this time. In your career, have you felt that on the few occasions where an Ulster final is kind of more important in a certain year than winning the All-Ireland? It actually reminds me, this game reminds me of, uh, I think it was 2011, when the tables were turned, uh, Tyrone were Tyrone were dominating Ulster and stuff, and Donegal were that team that was a wee bit hungrier. Um, maybe, I'm not going to say history's going to repeat itself, mm. but um, even last year there was a bit of ill feeling, a bit of sledging going on in the field, and a really, really bad press. I don't think players will forget that. I think it'll make it more. 
intense, a lot more space to it. And as I said, I just think Tyrone have a wee bit of an edge with the youth coming through and the hunger. Donegal have been there before with experience, but as I said, it'll be a tough game and it'll be hard to call, and I think it'll come down to the last 10 minutes. Yeah, I mean, you, interesting you mentioned that 2011 game, and the, the tables have almost completely turned in, in ways. Tyrone are in that underdog position now and are absolutely desperate for a win that would... It's, it, it seems more like more than just a win when it's against Donegal and all that they've achieved six Ulster finals in a row, the last Ulster team to win an Ireland final, that this, it's, it's more than a game. It could actually see a changing of the guard in Ulster as well. I, I, I just think Tyrone need to win Ulster. I think they need to win a, they need to win a cup. They need to win a competition at, at senior level. You know, these group of players, you know, people talk about the Stephen Needles, the Peter Cannons, they're still talking about that there because other teams that come through haven't broke through. But... With these young players, it's a total new team. All right, Sean Cavan is still there. They seem to be playing around him. They seem to be driving for him as well. So he he's the perfect captain. But there's just so many good players. There's so, so many uh, experienced and youth players coming through. And it's a great mix. And I just think Tyrone need to win this game. I think there's a wee bit more pressure on them. Because it is Donegal. And they've they have dominated Ulster football. Like in my like in my era, Armagh dominated Ulster football. So... Look, I just think Tyrone need to win this. Need to win this game. Yeah, you talk about the intensity of last year and the sledging and all the rest, and there seems to be a good bit of disdain between the two teams now at this point. Is that because of Donegal's dominance over the, the past five years, or is it yeah. deeper than that in your mind? Was it was it something that was in your mind prior to twenty eleven or in your playing days prior to prior to that? Look, the sledging goes on every every game, um, but Donegal. I think it's because the two teams have been, you know, relatively close to each other. It's always been fiery. League, league, whenever I was playing, league encounters, championship encounters have been no different. So it adds a bit of space. To, look, you don't want to be here and sledging and what's going on in the field. I think the teams have utmost respect for each other and always mm. have. But as I said, it's a, it's a win-at-all-costs game at the minute. You've seen with the O'Shea incident, that's get bad press too. So look, as long as the game goes, flows, and, and the referee's good, we, we should have been for a treat on Sunday. Uh, are you surprised at how Tyrone have been? At how good Tyrone have been this year? I, um, I, I was at a few. I was at a right few of the league games, and I was wondering, you know, when are they going to click? They finally did in the championship. They blew away. They blew away Derry and they blew away Calvin in the second game. I don't still don't think they've been tested. I still think their their defence uh, could merit a wee bit more, but. The way they play are very hard to break down. Collie Kavanagh and Justin McMahon playing two sweepers are exceptional. So, look, they're very hard to break down and um, I'm excited to watch them. I like going to watch them. They've just they've so much talent up front as well, so hopefully they can click in the day. But as I say, Donegal will give them a, a great test. They're playing your kind of stuff. Yeah, look, I like I like watching the forward. I, I like watching uh, Ronnie O'Neill and Matty Donnelly especially. I think Matty Donnelly's an exceptional player. He's grew in. I had the, had the privilege to play with him his first couple of years in, but he's grew into that role, and so has um, Sludden as well. He's been exceptional, and if them, them three boys can get on the ball, they make their own tech. Uh, Mickey has taken plenty of criticism over the last couple of years. Um, you know, at, at, as you said, they've had so much underage success, so many great underage players coming through that people maybe have been getting a little impatient with Mickey Hart. But if he wins this on Sunday, it would have to go down as one of his uh, one of his greatest ever managerial achievements, would it? Yeah, without doubt. Without doubt. Look, every manager... Like, Mickey Hart's set the bar that high for himself. He's come up through underage. He's, he's won all underage. Won three yard irons. Like, it's, his record speaks so high. So, to build a new team, to build new new players, that conveyor belt that everybody talks about throwing. I don't think it has been there over the past few years. It was, I don't think the players that was on the, the squad, the last few players, have bought in to what his philosophy was, and this team has. So, look, he's he's as much uh, to blame as them getting into the final, and he'll be he'll be pushing every every step of the way to get to win this match. How much do you personally miss weekends like this, Owen? Look, you don't miss the McKenna Cup or you don't miss the league games <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a frosty in a frosty morning or a frosty evening. Um, but look, these are the ones you miss. These are the ones you, the Ulster finals against Donegal's, the big days in Croke Park. Like you know, you, you still talk about the you still talk about the lads in two thousand and three, two thousand and five, and two and two thousand and eight. You still keep in contact with them, and you know they're buzzing for the whole county. It's give the whole county a bit of a lift. The supporters, there's flags out now around Tyrone, and that's so that's what you want. You miss these days, and I think the supporters miss these days as well. I think I know your answer to this, but how are you going to call it this weekend? 
Look, I think Tyrone. I think Tyrone's going to win this. Um, the last ten minutes is going to be key. I just think uh, they're. And it's hard to say are they hungrier than Donegal. You just don't know. But I think I just think they're they're fast, they're pacey, and they're young. And I think it's a young man's game at the minute. I just think there's a wee bit too many legs in Donegal. Okay, Owen, enjoy, enjoy the match. Thanks a million for talking to us. No problem. Thanks very much. The Murph and Mackey for most welcome Irishman of the year goes to Owen McDevitt. Owen, 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 Owen McDevitt. From Ireland's second captain show. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. Worldwide. Second captains. Those guys, are like, those guys are like family to me, man. Owen McDevitt. This is Locke. The coolest song I ever heard in my whole life. Owen McDevitt. All of you said I wouldn't make Stop it. Stop talking about Tom Finney. He said I was a loser. This guy is a bit of a turkey. <laughs> <laughs> All right. He said I was a fucking psycho. But look at me now. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. Worldwide. To say, for example, the Barcelona team you worked at, is it fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. So Murph, I was reading an article Keith Duggan wrote about Owen Mulligan there uh, a few years ago. Yeah. Here's one of his opening paragraphs. If you exclude the failing four driving tests in one week saga, the night in the sex club with, in Frisco, the sneaky after training pints, dodging Mickey Hart, revering Mickey Hart, mooning Mickey Hart, a full decade as one of the least predictable ball players of the game, a business going bust in the recession, the sledging with dubs and Kerry men, hateful days with the celebrity fat club, japes and practical jokes and book Egetry. Too many laughs to remember and also those tears he spilled just last August in Croke Park when he watched Tyrone in the stands and understood that it really was over for him. If you leave stuff like that out, then the football life of Owen Mulligan has been fairly uneventful. <laughs> Do you know what stood out for me there? Yeah. Mooning Mickey Hart. Mo- yeah. Mooning Mickey Hart. I, well, I'm, go- I'm going to say, I don't know the exact circumstances behind this, but I'm going to say that he, there may have been a mooning and Mickey Hart may have been in the vicinity of the mooning. But I don't think it was like a one-to-one, you know, walk into a 12 by 12 room, <laughs> moon Mickey Hart, and then walk out again. I, I think that maybe... I know, suppose we can't comment on the moon until we know the full context of the moon. Of the moon, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know that about moons, Mark. Right, before we move on, it's time to get to this. I've got a call here that says, you're the most boring, predictable, condescending interviewer around. Go back to lecturing. You have the charisma of a sick man. Oh, God. That's just it. I just wow. mentioned, not you, not me. Okay. Ain't nobody with my click. We don't normally click. broadcast click. all the, the stuff click. that comes from scum click. around the country. Ain't nobody fresher than my mug, mug. Click, 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 click. Yeah, last time I was presenting the show, we introduced a new slot entitled Ken's Friends, two Zs. Uh, this was on the back of a flood of emails from concerned listeners complaining about the many instances on the show when Ken asks Murph and Owen a question and the lads can't give him an answer. Short example here from earlier this year. Kent, he's recovered from the injury. It's amazing. Uh, even injuries can He's like Nicolas Cage in, uh, in what you call it. Um, what was that movie with, uh, with uh, John Malkovich? Con Air? Uh, Con Air, Yeah. <laughs> So essentially, <laughs> God, I thought there was more to that clip, but there wasn't. No, no, okay, that's fair enough. It is. Essentially, these listeners believe themselves to be better friends to Ken uh, than his presenter friends and colleagues of over ten years, and they want to prove it. People have been contacting the show in their droves. Yes, there's more than one Murph. About well, ten, okay. uh, begging to be involved in the challenge. Murph and Owen on the questions Ken puts them, and Owen wants nothing to do with this incredible slot. But I'm noticing this worrying trend more and more. Actually, this happened on the eve of the Euros. Um, it's like you know what, Victor Hugo, Hugo said about the uh, Battle of Waterloo. Who won the Battle of Waterloo? <laughs> but is this what he said? Yeah, who, who did Victor Hugo say won the Battle of Waterloo? Murph. Well, <laughs> the, 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 it, what's his name? The guy with uh, one arm. <laughs> what? Uh, well, of course, England the won The guy with one arm. Yeah, England won the Battle the of Waterloo. The one-armed man from The Fugitive. Yeah, no, it's not the one-armed man. He only had one eye. Nelson. Nelson, oh that's God. the lad. Yeah, Nelson, yeah. No, no, Nelson, no, Nelson was dead uh, 10 years by that stage. So Britain, Great Britain won the Battle of Waterloo, is that what we're saying? Uh, Wellington owned. You're stifling no. Ken. You're yeah. stifling Ken. That's Look what he's trying to bring to the show. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Ken. 
Cam Brown was the answer, obviously. <laughs> well, of course, it was, it was Cam Brown. We, fa- we found that, la- every, found that later. Every single listener was screaming at their phones, screaming Cam Brown. <laughs> you idiots! Right, because I'm on there today, it's time to introduce another challenger to the podcast. Today's scumbag is Owen McCall from Belfast. Hello, Owen. Hi, you all right? Very good, thank you. Owen has also sent in audio beds, P. Bezos, as well as Ken Friends. <laughs> uh, I heard you spotted Ken at the Euros. Is this true? Yeah. Uh, Ken, do you remember your Montmartre? Uh, Long Rouge? Mm. Oh, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Boulevard de Clichy, yeah. Yeah, I was on top of the toilet. I could see you. Great time. <laughs> on top of the toilet? Like a port loo Yeah, the port loo that half of us were climbed up on top of. Not the, tr- uh, the one beside the fellow in the tree. Not only is Owen from <laughs> Belfast sending in many requests uh, for merchandise and to come on the show, he's also hiding on top of toilets yeah, <laughs> to, try and, to try and capture. I, I think we should say that after the, we could consider this the, 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 the full stop on now. Well, now that you're, you've been on the show, we could all call a halt to this worrying trend of behaviour. Are there any podcast yeah. listening friends you want to say hello to Owen? Uh, Connor's out in Benicassim. All the best to him. All the best to Connor indeed. Yep. Hello, Connor. Uh, the rules are simple. Ken will tell a number of stories from inside and outside the world of sport. You must interject to give the correct answers. Owen, if uh, you get more answers correct than Murphy, win a second captain's mug. Murph, if you get more answers correct than Owen, the precious stock stays with us. Okay, cool. And oh. I remain a close friend of Ken Early's. Owen, are you ready? Yeah. Let's delve inside Ken's brain. So it looks like the English football team has decided to go English with Jurgen Klinsmann being beaten to the top job by Big Sam Allardyce. For the first time in his life, Big Sam benefits by not being called by which Latin-sounding surname? Allardyce. Allardyce. It is, of course, uh, Sam Allardyce. Now, it is a rarity for England to go English, so perhaps Sam is lucky to have time to surge for that sort of post-Brexit period because this is a country with a long history of looking abroad for foreign leadership expertise. In 1688, the summons went out due to a sectarian succession crisis, and which continental potentate answered the call? Oh, King William, of course, obviously. That's, that's obviously well, the William answer. III, Prince yeah, well, of Orange. And uh, they called the installation of that Dutch king on the English throne the Glorious Revolution, or what, what other name? Uh, the <laughs> well, obviously it's the um, uh, uh, sorry, Owen, did you say something there? No, no, no sorry. Just, just checking to see that you were still there. Uh, obviously, they called it the, the orange, the orange, the, the, the orange bloodless, the bloodless the, the revolution, bloodless, yes, of course. Of course. Yeah, but yeah. this so-called bloodless revolution caused a war in which many thousands were slain to erupt in which European That's country? That's Ireland, of course. Yeah, obviously. Ireland, of course. Yeah, yeah, uh, now, of course, William needed to get over to Ireland to put down the rebellion. The arrival of his ships is commemorated by which modern-day annual Bro- cultural event? Brothers live bonfires. Yes, indeed, where loyalists set fire to their communities and hold a gigantic <laughs> rave amongst the flames. Now, the most famous battle of the war happened at the Boyne, and the victory is celebrated at the recently rebranded Orange Fest, of course, by today's Orange Men, but the victory was also hailed at the time by which important European leader? Well, that's um, the Pope. The Pope! <gasps> pope oh, Alexander. <laughs> yes, isn't, isn't it ironic? It's like rain on your wedding day. Now, by this time... Uh, the Jacobite King James is already running away. His hasty exit from the battlefield, leading his troops, giving to, giving him yes, which course. derisive nickname? Of course. Uh, well, sorry, this is uh, James, of course. Um, well, that was his name. Well, I'm asking for the nickname. Yeah, well, I, I was just checking to make sure that I, the nickname that I'm about to say is the correct nickname for the person that we're looking for. So that's King James, the Speedy. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, the way, he wasn't invited. Seamus on Cocker, or James the Shit. Uh, <laughs> after further setbacks in the battlefield, the Jacobite army eventually withdrew to negotiate the terms of their surrender from which fortified Well, Irish that's obviously Limerick. I mean, Limerick, indeed. And 300 years later, which future England manager would return to that town? Oh, well, that's to lead Sam, Sam, Sam Allardyce. Allardyce. was Big Sam Allardyce. So, of course, uh, that's 4-3 to me, so... I'm giving that last one to Murph. Yes. Murph, unbelievable. Oh. Beautiful. That's 4-3. <laughs> Once again, Murph, you are a better friend to Ken. The I, th- stays I thought you'd be at an unfair advantage there, Owen. Yeah, well... It's basically it's your least. entire culture. Well, that, <laughs> yeah. that, that's what we were being quizzed on, your entire culture. At least the culture you grew up quite uh, in quite close proximity being to. In quite close proximity to, yeah. I thought it was a double bluff. Oh. What was going on. <laughs> oh, and it's been lovely having you on air. You're a great fella, and it makes it all the more difficult for me to press this giant emergency button here. It's <laughs> the way it goes. If you lose to Murph... <sighs> Come on! That was good. I mean, I really felt halfway through that I was struggling quite badly there. Yeah. But um, it was the Treaty of Limerick, I mean, you know. I knew it was coming, but I still still got there. Patrick Sarsfield, of course. Ken, tell the people about this amazing new series on OJ Simpson. It's been easing our transition out of the Euros, Murph. Is your 
Euro's fever completely gone now. Are you it showing is, any symptoms? It, no, no, it is uh, completely subsided. I'm uh, the patient is uh, got a clean bill of health. Um, it's really, really, really good. So it's a five part series, quite long episodes, like nearly two hours. I think two TV hours is yeah. kind of um, the length of the episodes. I've watched the first three out of out of the five, which takes you up to kind of the beginning of the O.J. Simpson trial. It is absolutely brilliant. It's one of the best kind of, I mean, just in, in terms of all the strands that it weaves together. It's about O.J. Simpson, his rise, his uh, his time at the top, his catastrophic um, fall. Um, and it kind of weaves together the strands of O.J.'s life, his exceptional sporting career, but with the, uh, I mean, brings in so many elements of kind of American life and what the city of Los Angeles was like at that time. I mean, there's just some amazing, amazing stuff in there. I mean, you've got, it's, 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 there's a counterpoint between OJ, this brilliant sort of athlete who's celebrated by white America and, you know, the, the, this kind of gilded existence that he has. And then the kind of wider social context of the city, the unbelievable brutality of the police. I mean, you watch this and you're thinking, how was it? That uh, apartheid South Africa ended up getting such a bad reputation when mm. this is exactly the same, except that it's not sort of formally written into the law. In fact, it's, you could almost say that it's worse because it's more hypocritical. You know, the, the law says one thing. The Constitution says one thing. You know, all men are created equal or maybe that's the Declaration of Independence. And yet the reality is apartheid, you know, and... So it, it, it kind of then traces the, you know, everything, everything that happens to me. I don't want to say too much of it. I've just got to say, this is brilliant. I mean, it gripped me in a way that I didn't really expect. Because I remember the OJ thing happening at the time. I mean, I was about 15. It was during the World Cup, the 94 World Cup, that this thing with the Bronco happened. And that was like the first time I'd ever heard of OJ Simpson. It was only later I realized, oh, that's Nordberg from The Naked Gun. Yeah. That was how I knew this guy. You know, I just thought he was an actor, whatever. Uh, and, and I was like, what is going on with this? Why is this such a big deal? You know, I, I had no real grasp of of why everyone was following this white car driving, it appeared mm. to be driving quite slowly. Um, and then the trial that happened, and the trial was obviously interesting because it was so kind of grisly uh, and obviously became more interesting as it went on. You realize, how, how could he possibly get away with this, you know? Um, but this sort of explains why that became such a sensational event. Uh, and and the significance that it had and it really is a fantastic piece of work Yeah, you can watch it on BT Sport now it's been shown on ESPN in the States and we're going to talk about it right now with Brian Murphy on US Sports Yes, we have to say it remember this is just a football game no matter who wins or loses I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behaviour You're being extremely truculent whatever truculent means if that's good, I'm there Strike three called and the Giants have won the World Series Brian, how are you doing this week? Things are good. Uh, stateside, calming down a little bit after uh, Kevin Durant arrived in town. Although the Warriors refused to go away from the national news, one of our guys, Draymond Green, got arrested over the weekend for simple assault. So that was uh, a little alarming for all the uh, Warrior, uh, shall we say, uh, you know, us Warrior, what's the word? Pollyannas who believe that, you know, they're the greatest guys in the history of the world. Well, not so much. When Draymond got arrested. But other than that, it's a super quiet week stateside. Baseball takes the week off. We had our Major League Baseball All-Star game. And then other than that, we do nothing. We'll watch a little golf over there in the UK. And then we'll uh, and then we'll wish Owen uh, well with his big mm-hmm. nuptials Friday. Hopefully one of you will get really drunk and do something that gets uh, videoed. And I'll see it uh, virally. Hopefully yeah. that'll happen. Money's definitely on Murph. But uh, that's mm. a perfect time, so, to talk about a major figure in the history of US sports, Brian, who's been thrown back into the public consciousness recently because of a couple of really well put together TV series that we've, been, that we've mentioned on the show already. He's a San Franciscan, like you, went to USC, like you. How much were you aware of OJ Simpson as a kid growing up? Well, I'm going to pause you right there now, okay? And this is like, it's not your fault, Mark. I understand, you know, you, you know you're, you're in the big chair. You're doing your thing. You, you, you said I went to USC. I actually went to their brutal, brutal, brutally deep and bitter rival, UCLA. Now, that would be like 
so you just told like a Claire man that he's from Tipperary. That's <laughs> what you just did. You know, all right? I better hold or my hands you... up here. And uh, this is probably my fault. I can't believe you're actually. I'm I'm proud of you, Murph, that you do this. Yeah. I thought yeah. you'd definitely let me take the heat no, there, Brian. It's no. all Murph's fault. Uh, you just told a Galway man he's from Mayo. I know. I know. This is this, this might be the most insulting thing we've ever said to you, Brian. And we're sorry. But, you know what's interesting is it, it, the reason why I bring it up is this this wealth and this privilege and this very kind of creepy uh, elitism that is associated with USC. It's a private school and it plays a role in the whole thing. But yeah, OJ Simpson, it is you're right. He's back. He's back. You never thought he'd go away. 22 years after the murder. As far as uh, O.J. Simpson, the football player, yes, I was extremely aware of him. Of course, all Americans were. He was, he's one of the most famous NFL players of all time, and certainly in his era in the 70s, you could argue he was the most famous player in the NFL. As you guys probably know from just life and from the documentary, he transcended into movies, The Naked Gun, where he actually showed comic acting chops. And then, of course, stateside, he was very famous as a pitch man for Hertz rental cars where the idea was you didn't have to run through an airport to get your rental car because Hertz had everything covered. So they ran these series of ads with OJ running through airports, hurtling, saying you don't have to do this. But it showed off, of course, OJ's athletic skills, and he would run through airports, which people then began to associate him. He went from one of the best football players of all time to this great pitch man. He was handsome. He was charismatic. He was wealthy. And he was OJ, as the documentary says. I think there's a telling part where – one of his friends says something about, hey, man, uh, why are you hanging out with so many cop friends? You know, you know, you, we're black. And he said, I'm not black. He said, I'm OJ. And that's a true story. He really did create this persona uh, that became, obviously, choose your word, psychopathic or megalomaniac or, or whatever word you want, narcissism to the to the criminal degree. So, yeah, really recommend uh, the, the piece if people haven't seen it. Yeah, um, one thing that you just touched on there was that his time at USC was absolutely vital in, uh, as you say, the, the, the privileged nature of USC was such that he might have been the first black uh, kid that uh, his fellow students would have ever met. Uh, and that had played such a massive role in him deciding, right, I'm, I'm not going to be a black athlete, I'm going to be OJ, that he was going to basically try and become the sports star that white America could embrace. Yeah, all calculated in a very bizarre way. And, of course, this goes head on with the times. In all the years we've been talking, we've talked throughout the years about social issues and athletes in America and you know what do they do and what they don't do. And we've talked about how guys like Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan have sort of just changed the, the, the pattern and became just total corporate pitchmen and just didn't want to ruffle anybody's feathers and it became kind of sad how they didn't, you know, ever take a stand or try to change society in any way. Uh, and they just went for the money of corporations. Well, in many ways, they were kind of following OJ's lead. You know, we always talk about Jordan and Tiger as the guys, but OJ did it before they did. And this is all during the most turbulent time in American history, the 1960s, when everything was happening from the Kennedy assassination to the Martin Luther King assassination to the civil rights movement to everything to Vietnam, all that stuff going on and all sorts of black athletes got involved. Hell, you guys did huge stories and shows on Muhammad Ali when he died, right? Because of what he did and didn't do in, in, in the time that he was an athlete in the 60s and how controversial he was for taking the ultimate stand, which was, I'm not going to fight for America in a war, um, not to mention race relations in the country. So that guy, I mean, obviously Ali is at the top of the list. Then you go down to guys like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, or his name was Lou Alcindor at UCLA, standing up as a black Muslim and questioning things about white America. And then Jim Brown, the great running back from the Cleveland Browns, and and the, those who have seen the piece know that there's even a, um, a, a there's a press conference where I think it's Ali and Jim Brown and Jabbar and uh, a very prominent sociologist named Harry Edwards who's also from the Bay Area who you guys should uh, you may have had him on through the years but he's an outstanding guest for the podcast uh, to talk about race relations in America he's a, a fascinating professor at Cal Berkeley but at that time he was a young San Jose State student activist and they all asked OJ to get involved hey man listen this is what's going on with our people. This is what's going on with our country. This is our chance to make a difference. And OJ flat out said, not only no, but, you know, don't ask again. I'm here to be my, I'm here wow. to get mine. I'm here to be OJ and I'm here to kind of live this life. And he wanted to, he craved 
yeah. for whatever reason, he craved this white elite, private, wealthy society, and that's what he he ran towards that, and not the uh, civil rights and uh, anti-war stuff. Yeah, there's uh, an an amazing defining moment in his uh, sporting career in a uh, rival matchup between the between US and US UCLA in 1967, where he he basically runs 64 yards, I think, or something for the winning touchdown, and the crowd is like. It's like the, the Berlin Olympics. I mean, it's the widest crowd I've ever seen in my entire life. And that's only 1967, too. That's yeah. not like 1930 or anything. You know what I mean? This is 1967. Yeah. Um, USC in particular. Listen, we joke about me being a UCLA guy. And, and of course, racism exists everywhere, no matter what school you're at or whatever, wherever you are, any state in the union or any country in the world, you're going to deal with racism. But USC would have had a reputation as being lily white. UCLA at least had the uh, the history and tradition of being the school of Jackie Robinson. That was where he went in the 1940s, and we were the first UCLA we, I say we because I went there, uh, the, the first school in many respects to have black athletes in the major sports. UCLA always had a very progressive record in that respect. So it was kind of ironic that O.J. Simpson was, was dashing and slashing his way to uh, beating UCLA for this school of ultimate privilege. Now, I will say in USC's defense – Times have changed. They're a much more uh, diverse school now. And quite frankly, it's become a much better academic school. Um, we used to kind of tease them because, not kind of, we'd actually openly mock them as just like the school for dumb, rich, white guys whose parents were uh, Southern California you know, businessmen who were just going to funnel themselves into the family business. But USC has made great strides as a, as a much more academic school and a much more diverse school. But at that time, OJ uh, attaching himself to that society was so different from what the other black athletes, you know, the 1968 Mexico City Games with Tommy Smith and John Carlos with their fists in the air during the national anthem. OJ couldn't have been farther from that. He was like, hey, where, what's the next party I can go to with the, the rich white crowd? And what's the next, uh, you know, uh, agency or ad I can pitch for a rich white company? He, he buddies up with the CEO of Hertz. He buddies up with Hollywood producers. And in fact, uh, even leaves his black wife for a white woman and moves to the super wealthy white enclave of Brentwood, California, which if you know at all your, your geography of the United States, West Los Angeles is a, was one of the richest areas of, you know, every city has its rich suburb. West Los Angeles would be it. Be, not necessarily Beverly Hills, but Pacific Palisades, Brentwood, that whole area, Malibu. That became OJ's lair. And that, of course, is where all the murders took place too. Yeah, because of his refusal to get involved um, in the campaigns of those revolutionary athletes that you mentioned there, Brian, how was he thought of? How damaging was, was that to the black community or the equality movement, do you think? How was he thought of amongst those people? So you're talking obviously to a Caucasian American who didn't think of it that way. When mm. I was a kid, we thought of OJ as just a cool dude. Man, OJ's awesome, man. He ran for 2,000 yards, which nobody had ever done in the NFL. 14 games, unbelievable record. And now, look at him. Hertz ads are cool. Hey, OJ's running through an airport. That's funny. You'd go to an airport and just pretend to run around like OJ, and then you go see these movies. Now, he, what's funny about him as an actor, he, he was terrible as an actor to start. In fact, I believe the piece shows some of his early work where he's about as wooden as a statue in some of these scenes. But he actually improved as an actor. He did this movie called Capricorn One, which is an underrated movie. It's about the faking of the Mars landing, James Brolin, Elliot Gould, and OJ. And he wasn't that bad in it. He actually he began to get acting chops. And then by the time the naked gun rolled around, guys, everybody was like, oh, man, OJ's funny. He, you know, he played the, the – those were slapstick comedy movies. I'm, you guys probably have seen them. They're really funny. And he was funny in them. So everybody thought OJ was cool. Everybody liked him. Now, I didn't, you know, it's funny to kind of see the documentary now and see what black America was thinking. Mm. I, I guarantee you that black America still thought OJ was cool because he had that charisma that transcended everything. And obviously that led him into his problems because he believed he was bulletproof. And, and he was also, I, I should add, guys, he was a, a major TV uh, commentator on American football games. He became a Monday night football guy, stand, sat, sat next to Howard Cosell and Frank Gifford in the Monday Night Football booth, and then he did a lot of work for NBC, the other NFL network. So he, had, he, he added that to his resume. So up until the moment of the murders, you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who was anti-O.J. Simpson. Now you find out you know, that he didn't associate with the black community that much, and, and guys like weren't that happy with him. But when he did extend his, his time to the black community, I think they were excited to have him. You know, Oh, my God. 
Well, hell, guys, it all it all played out in the verdict. I mean, it was a mostly black jury that found him not guilty. Now, you could get into the reasons why. Was it because they believed OJ so cool and charismatic that they thought they didn't want to vote him? Or was it, as the documentary posits, more of a deep, decades-long sociological vote and repudiation of the police by the black community? That's the other, probably the much bigger elephant in the room. But I'll tell you this, they weren't. I mean, OJ was still cool to this day, and I still remember, guys, the weirdest thing, and you guys are also much younger than me, when the 1995 verdict was handed down, you guys were probably in school then, but I was, you know, working in the world. That day was so remarkable. It was an incredible divide, and I don't think white America knew it until that day, the divide between who was rooting for OJ and who wasn't. I would say that, you have to look at the poll numbers, but what, 80% of white America thought OJ was guilty for sure. We find out later that black America believed he was innocent because of their distrust of the police. And when the verdict said not guilty, it was stunning what happened across the country. Black classrooms and black schools and black communities burst into cheers. They couldn't believe there was video footage of these cheers and hugs and tears and celebrations like they had just won some sort of major sporting event. And white America was dumbfounded by that. And of course, you know, that just yet another divide in this country. It's playing out to this day. I mean, literally, yeah. to this day, yeah. of what's going on here. Carmelo Anthony wrote a piece in The Guardian yesterday, actually, Brian, uh, about the Alton Sterling, Philando Castile shootings. And, and um, le- we've seen LeBron wearing the I Can't Breathe t-shirt, Derek Rose with the hands up, don't shoot, and a host of other athletes. I'm interested, I know we've discussed this um, before, but I'm interested how prevalent you think the Woods Simpson kind of attitude now is amongst black athletes. Uh, well, you're right uh, that LeBron has done that, and 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 Derrick Rose. You're right. It's different now, though. It's um, it seems like they are making statements, but it's like it's almost like everything's diluted now. There's so much media everywhere that even when LeBron wears that shirt or Derrick Rose wears that shirt, they're still balancing that with their pitching. I mean, LeBron is a major pitch man uh, for Samsung phones and for Kia cars and. Uh, you know, uh, um, Nike, obviously. So these guys are making their statements, but it doesn't seem to define them. They're not ma- they're not paying the ultimate price like Muhammad Ali did, which was mm. to sacrifice his entire career and be thrown in jail at the height of his heavyweight champ powers. So, I mean, I'm not calling it, I'm not criticizing what they do as, as saying it's it's hollow. It's, it's great that they're trying to raise awareness in this world and, and open people's eyes, but it's more of almost a, I don't want to say a passing thing, but it's sort of more of a, it doesn't make as big of a splash. It doesn't seem to affect their pitch man status, their corporation status. And they're not willing to sort of boycott anything or make any kind of statements. You know, I mean, the Olympics are coming up. Nobody here is willing to say, hey, in my country, until the police stop shooting black men, I'm not going to wear USA on my jersey. You know, we're not at that state yet. It just seems like Whatever social statements are made by the by black athletes now are they're heard, but they don't resonate like they used to. So it's uh, it's going to take something more dramatic. I mean, obviously we had the whole Missouri Black Lives Matter thing back in the fall, and some college athletes got a little involved in that. But we haven't seen anybody, you know, sit out the game or or not wear the jersey or do their thing. Mm. They still are worried about getting paid too. So I mean, the OJ effect is. Uh, I mean, people do still follow the OJ model to some degree. You know, there's so much to talk about with OJ. We might return for a part two of this conversation, Brian, a little bit later in the series. But another person we want to talk about who you could also compare to Woods in some respects is Dustin Johnson, the third major of the season starts today, <laughs> the Open Championship, uh, Open Championship at Royal Troon. And all of a sudden, Dustin Johnson is the man to beat. Won his last two tournaments, the US Open and the Bridgestone Invitational. Uh, those wins earned him $3.4 million in the last four weeks. This is Woods-like unstoppable form. Yeah, by the way, I just love the trade. I'd love to see O.J. Simpson and Dustin Johnson have a conversation. I don't know what the hell they would say to each other, man. Just, hey, how's it going? Just two guys. By the way, O.J.'s in jail right now, just to follow up on that. But you'll get mm, to that. Yeah. Uh, Dustin Johnson, finally, right? I mean, guys, this is it in golf. We see these guys knock and knock and knock and knock and knock. Hello, Lee Westwood, right? He still hasn't knocked down that major championship door. But, you know, in many ways, I'm sort of, in a, in a bizarre way, sort of happy and proud for Dustin Johnson, even though, He's he's the kind of guy, and I was around golf when he was thriving. I went out to some of the, I covered some of those majors that he blew. I happened to be for Yahoo Sports right next to him in Whistling Straits when he grounded his club in that bunker, and so I was actually right on the scene when that whole thing went down. Wow! And I was 
always amazed and blown away at his utter, what's the word? I, I was going to say indifference or his utter sort of ignorance of his situation. He was just like, oh, really? Oh, bummer, man. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it was like, well, dude, are you, I, dude, you just lost like your ch- the dream of your lifetime and you've lost it over and over again. The 2010 Pebble Beach U.S. Open, he was leading and he just exploded on the second hole, made a triple bogey. 2010 PGA Straits, uh, PGA Whistling Straits, he grounds his club in the bunker. That happens. Uh, 2014 or 2015, 2014 British Open, he pumps a ball out of bounds when he had a chance to take the lead. 2015 U.S. Open, he three putts from 10 feet at Chambers Bay. I mean, the guy, anybody with a like a self-awareness or a self-consciousness would be so scarred by these things. You would it'd be, you know, you'd wonder how they'd ever draw a club back ever again. But you guys, the movie Bull Durham, I probably referenced in the past. I always go back to that because it's so brilliant because of the 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 two personas it identifies. Kevin Costner's character is the talented baseball player but he has self-awareness and he's always concerned with can he achieve the dream and his self-awareness curses him and drags him down from reaching his full potential and then the other character played by tim robbins he has no awareness whatsoever of himself well i've always said dustin johnson is nuke lelouch he is he just he's had all this terrible stuff happen to him he was suspended for reportedly a drug bust right so he's got a drug bust on his uh on his record all these major failures what does he do? He turns up and wins the U.S. Open in dominating fashion in Oakmont after he's told in the middle of his round that he may have a penalty that might cost him the tournament. Again, that's another case of him just going, oh, huh? Really? Oh, okay. Here, give me my driver. Boom, 360 down the middle, center cut. You know, He's so physically talented. It's, I honestly think he's the most physically talented player I've seen maybe other than Tiger and maybe even including Tiger. And I mean by that power accuracy, touch around the greens. His hands and his hand-eye and his power are so incredible. No player can match his physical talents. And now he's finally just put it enough together and knocked on the door enough times that he's now the man as they go to Royal True. And how would I wouldn't be surprised one iota to see him win, other than it's hard to win every tournament you enter. And he's won the last two big, big ones. But man, oh man, he is a uh, he's the champion of no self awareness. So, is your money on Murph to make the fool out of himself at the wedding? I hope so. I'm looking Brian, for somebody. You, Brian, you know viral. that. I, no, Brian, you know that um, uh, that I would never do such a thing. You've seen I'm uh, quite an understated presence uh, on an evening's drinking. You know this, Brian. We're looking forward to getting the Skype link up for the uh, after dinner speeches, Brian. Do you think if I if I popped in via Skype during the ceremony would would there a t- would would we get a tear out of Owen if, no. if U.S. Murph popped up on would, Skype the the floodgates would open he's a reserved <laughs> man but I I know that he wouldn't be able to handle that well we'll see what we can cook up boys have a good time and I want you dancing I want you guys to be the last guys on the dance floor all right <laughs> thanks a million for talking to us Brian all right Mark and Murph take care give a damn about the money being shot take the title take it all and go to jail tomorrow this chump has got everybody scared scared of what you told him i don't have nothing but a prayer well chump all i need is a prayer because if that prayer reached the right man not only will george fulman fall the mountains will fall you saw him on television there was no one more beautiful you saw him walking down the street he was a beautiful thing to see he moved around the ring he had style and class he was tall and good looking everything you'd want from a boxer wrestler football player and to be honest with you he belonged to the arts because he had poem, poetry, he had it all. Sugar man, met a false friend on a lonely, dusty road. A specimen, a fighting machine. You know, he was handsome, he was articulate, he was funny, charismatic, and was whooping ass too. Thank you for owning up to that screw up, Murph. Oh, I think well. we might have let him down a little bit. I, I sensed he was actually a like, little annoyed about the whole. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, McDevitt would never have done that. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. He, yeah, 
McDevitt probably would have gone through the you know the listings for every student who've uh, attended <laughs> at both the USC and UCLA from 1973 <laughs> until 1997, uh, incorporating the 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 full. The full possible ages of U.S. Murph. So I suppose if you're asking me, did I do that? Then I'm saying, no, I didn't do that. So Ken, you want to I make another point on OJ? Well, I was watching it and I thought, so watching it at some point, I thought, this guy is an example of that thing that uh, one of Owen's uh, favorite subjects, mm. um, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Encephalopathy? Have I said chronic traumatic encephalopathy? Uh, you've said nearly all of those words, yes. Is that the? Is that, that actually order? what yeah, CTE what stands yeah, yeah, for? Yeah, that's what it's called, yeah. The brain damage that um, American footballers tend to get, the concussion syndrome. I thought this this is like a classic case of it. O.J. Simpson is a, is a classic case of that. You know, you see, you hear a lot of the, um, the, the symptoms of it kind of including uh, this extremely kind of mercurial state of state of mind you know in, in terms of the moods changing in an instant kind of aggression um impulsivity and all these sorts of things which he seems to display and this is a guy who had been um 11 seasons in the nfl uh, as a guy who i mean it, it's it's incredible actually when you look at the they're, they're talking about his his career i mean in college you know it's the entire game plan of the team is give uh, him the ball and he runs yeah i think that's the thing for a lot of people uh, this side of the world who recognize OJ just from movies and just from the subsequent appearances on, on in court and uh, you know in, in, in news and stuff like that I never knew um, in any way shape or form how good an athlete he was yeah. he was just incredible and the fact that every every single play was just fed to him directly he was if he was either going to um, if he was tackled um, fine but there was going to be different uh, uh, periods in the game where he wasn't and they were definitely going to score a touchdown so he was like one of these players that um, he was incredibly explosive he was able to um, play through people as well as had this incredible sidestep he was able to run sideways jump over bodies um, had obviously incredible pace but he was somebody that was just time after time after time he was like a bash up merchant he was almost yeah. like given like a first centre yeah. might be in rugby um, he was he was constantly fed the ball yeah and I think uh, they're, they're working at the moment on a CTE test that you can do while a person is alive because at the moment you just have to see their brain after they're all dead. you can see is you know it's like it can be it's a post-mortem uh, uh, diagnosis yeah. um, so I mean well it, yeah, tr- it I turned mean, out that uh, so I, I basically looked it up to see if this was you know a thing and it turned out that you know Benedict O'Malley who's the doctor who's um, the movie Concussion yeah. is based on this guy uh, and he has said I'm willing to bet my medical license uh, on it that O.J. Simpson does have wow. CTE. Um, you know, exposed to thousands of bl- uh, thousands of blunt force traumas of his brain during his career. Um, he said, uh, "Oh God, where is it?" Yeah, another indicator, uh, as Dr. Miley says, is the size of Simpson's head. Uh, apparently, he has a big, huge head. Uh, "Quote unquote." That's according to Dave Honowski, who was the equipment manager for the Buffalo Bills, had to wear a custom-made size eight and a quarter helmet as the manufacturers didn't go above seven and three quarters. So O'Malley says, if you have a bigger head, that means your head is heavier. It means the momentum of impacts are bigger. It's basic physics. So it's, I mean, it's kind of a, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what more you can say about that. I mean, clearly it's just an mm. idea, but it seems as though that may have also had, you know, the way that he became may have had something to do with his football career. Not just the, not just in terms of the celebrity and the kind of delusional reality that you live in, or that the, the, the this documentary shows O.J. Simpson's kind of, you know, as we were just talking with Brian there, you know, his kind of, he, it's it's a fake world that he's living in, you know, it's kind of a dream world. Uh, and that obviously can have distorting effects on the personality, but there, there may actually have been a physical basis for it as well. Right, before we go, it's been a long time since we got one of these. That's right, you're a real Irishman. You get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room there? You got the potatoes yeah. and the puccine. Huh? And the puccine. Oh, yeah, there you are. Born and bred, yeah, in uh, County Meath, a little place called Navin. So it seems, it seems like such a very long time since we've had a Chris Brosnan immigrant shout out. And so much has changed in our world since then. Our nearest neighbour has turned her back on the wider world, choosing to leave the EU. And the spirit of 
global community which Pierce has made the cornerstone of his own personal philosophy. We will continue to honour Pierce's swashbuckling global appeal, however, and we have a message here from Eamon Power in India which demonstrates the unifying effect that Mr Brosnan, second captains in sport, in this case, Kabaddi, can have in the world. Over to you, Eamon. Dear all... Following your continued expansion across all media formats, as a long-time listener, I remain always keen to spread the word of Second Captains to all corners far and wide. I'm in India for the past 11 months and aware of your dedicated following of the sport, when the opportunity to don my much-faded, highly-stained and slightly-shrunk SC t-shirt at the Star Sports Pro Kabaddi League Season 4 matchup between the Bangalore Bulls and the Telagu Titans uh, rose, I just couldn't pass it up. Please find the evidence attached. Disappointingly, as I'm sure you're aware... The Bulls went down badly following a highly successful initial raid from the Titans. A good, if confusing time, was still had by all. Did you hold this for me? You know my love of Kabaddi. No, I know. It is is quite strange. This literally arrived this week. Eamon may well have known that uh, that uh, your arrival was imminent in the presenter's seat. I mean, you probably didn't even see that raid, did you? No, I didn't see that raid. <laughs> I didn't see the highly successful initial raid from the Telagu Titans. Thank you, Eddie Eamon. Your photographs of you helpfully pointing at a cardboard cutout <laughs> of a Kabaddi player will adorn the walls of the second captain's offices in perpetuity. Eamon. Eamon. Thank you, Eamon. By the way, contact us and tell us where you're listening to the show around the world and we'll give you a mention. You don't always need the big Kabaddi-style spiel, but thank you nonetheless, Eamon. Uh, do we have time to welcome our last guest to the show, Murph? Oh, uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, Brian Stafford's on the line. Oh. Is he really? No, we don't, we don't. We actually don't. No. We're, we're out of time. Next time, Brian. Tweet us at Second <laughs> Captains. No football show today. We'll be back with a fresh one on Monday. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, thank you, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Ken. And thank you all for listening. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, does.